May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So my name is Alan Ventrup. I serve on Bishop Waldo's staff as Canon for Evangelism and Mission. So one of the joys of, of my role is that, that I travel around the diocese and I get to preach to a new congregation each week. Also, one of the struggles is that I have to preach to a new congregation <laughs> each week. But y'all are laughing, so y'all already know I'm a funny guy, and yeah. No, but it is interesting to come in and and I don't know what's going on in the life of Christ Church. I mean, I know on the diocesan level, right? Y'all are in transition, all of these things. But I don't know y'all. Y'all don't know me. And so we have to just look at the scriptures and just take what we think the scriptures are saying to God's people in general. But usually I found that, that it tends to work out that it's speaking to specific situations as well. And this week, right, like we have the greatest hits, right? We have David and Goliath, right? And if I brought my kids here, I'd probably have an object lesson and like have one of them try to throw a rock at me. They do that anyway. And then we have the disciples with Jesus in the boat, another great story of the faith. These are stories that we teach children. These are stories from very young that we, we teach to talk about faith to talk about courage, to talk about what it means to follow Jesus. But what stuck out to me today from our gospel is is the disciples' initial reaction. These are guys who know the sea, right? A bunch of them are fishermen. This isn't their first time in a boat. This isn't their first time in a storm. But this time, something happens that causes them to scream out, Jesus, teacher, do you not care that we are dying? And in this response, in this gospel story today, we see the disciples struggling at the intersection of faith and fear. They're struggling at the intersection that I think we too often, or at least I, too often struggle with, that intersection of faith and fear. But I think we need to talk not just about the disciples on the lake, but first we need to talk about why they were on the lake in the first place. Because just before this, in in Mark's gospel, Jesus was telling parables about the kingdom of God, comparing the kingdom of God to different things, saying this is the kingdom of God, it's big and it's open and it's for everyone. And now Jesus is forcing the disciples to live the kingdom of God because they are in the boat going to the other side. And the other side is not a place that folks wanted to go. Their side of the lake was safe. Their side of the lake was their people. Their side of the lake was known. And Jesus is saying, we're going to the other side. But the disciples don't go to the other side alone. Jesus is there with them. 
I think the first miracle here, before we even get to the, to the calming of the sea, is the fact that the disciples got on the boat in the first place. Right? All Jesus really says is, let's get on the boat and go to the other side. And they dutifully, it seems, they don't put much up, up much of a fight. They get on the boat and they set sail. The faith that the disciples showed in that act, the trust the disciples showed in getting on this boat and going to a dangerous place, going across a boundary, going to the other side, that faith, to me, is the first miracle of this gospel story. Because Jesus didn't say, here's my plans, here's what we're going to do, here's step by step, here's who we're going to encounter, this is how it's going to go, and, and it's going to be okay. No, Jesus says, let's get in the boat and go. And the disciples got in the boat, and they went. They didn't know the whole plan. All they knew is that Jesus was asking them to take the first step. And they took it. Theirs, again, was a response of faith, not fear. We've had those moments in our common life these past 17, 18, how, you lose track now, but however many months. You think back to March 2020, and we had to close the doors to churches for public worship and figure out what we were going to look like as the body of Christ in this new socially distant way, what it was going to look like when we couldn't pass the offering plate, what it was going to look like when we couldn't have coffee and lemonade together, what it was going to look like when we couldn't be what we had always known. But God asked us to not figure everything out. Way back in March of last year, we didn't know what it would look like today. We were asked to take the first step. And y'all here at Christ Church did. And some of y'all's first steps are things that we at the diocesan level held up as faithful steps. Parking lot church with the transmitter and all. Like I can remember telling other congregations they needed to talk to Gordon because y'all had figured something out. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't what we were used to. It was different and it's still different. But it was a faithful first step that helped us figure out how we were going to follow God to the other side, whatever that other side looks like. But back to our gospel story, it's not long after the disciples show great faith by getting onto this boat to go to some unknown area that things start to change. Because there's a storm. Our passage today tells us that, that the waves and the wind were such that the boat was almost gone. The boat was taking on water probably, it was listing probably, it was about to sink. And we already talked about these are fishermen, these are folks who know what to do. These are folks who made their living knowing what to do when the storm came to their boat. But for whatever reason, they were at the end of their expertise. They were at the end of their experience. 
they did not know what to do next. So they looked to Jesus. But, as it turns out, Jesus was sleeping. Jesus seemed unbothered. Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? I think this is an experience that many of us have had. I think this is an experience that many of us are having. We're at the end of our expertise. We're at the end of our experience. We're at the end of what we know to do. And so we look to Jesus. But sometimes maybe it feels like Jesus is sleeping. We've all prayed prayers that don't get answered the way that we want. We've all cried out for things that don't turn out the way that we want. We've all gotten ticked off and yelled at Jesus, Jesus, do you not care that we are dying? We've all done that. Maybe some of us are still doing that. But as Christians, we profess a faith that gets us in the boat and trusts that Jesus is in the boat with us, even if it feels like he's sleeping. As Christians, we profess a faith that God is working in us even when maybe it's not exactly what we want. As Christians, we profess a faith that God has a plan, that God is for us, and that in that boat that's sinking, God is with us. Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? Do you not hear our prayers? Do you not love us? But here's the thing, I think, for the disciples then and for us now. Our fears may cause us to cry out. Our fears may cause us to doubt. Our fears may cause us to wonder why Jesus seems to be sleeping. But our faith, our individual faith, our collective faith, knows differently. Because the disciples weren't alone in the boat. And it wasn't just Jesus that was in the boat with them. The disciples had each other in the boat trying to figure out what was going on. And their boat wasn't even the only one on the sea that day. Our gospel has this one little throwaway line in it and says there were other boats with him. So there were other boats being tossed around in the sea. But we don't get any details on those boats. I think maybe that's because when the storm hits our lives, we get tunnel vision. 
When my life gets crazy, I sometimes think I'm the only person for whom things are happening. I think maybe we're all like that. When we're in trouble, we don't see other folks who are going through the storm with us. Because fear distorts our perception. Things grow bigger in our mind, our problems, but some things grow smaller, like the world, our abilities, even our perception of God. And Jesus still sleeps. And, and maybe that's because Jesus is confident enough to know what's going to happen, that he can rest in the midst of the storm. Or maybe it's because the disciples didn't need Jesus to actually be awake. They just needed to know that Jesus was there with him. But they do wake Jesus up. And he stands up, stretches out his arms, and says to the sea, Peace, be still. And there was a dead calm, our scripture says. This isn't what the disciples were expecting to happen. I don't really know what they were expecting to happen, but, but our gospel says they were filled with awe. So I don't think they expected Jesus to just stand up and say a couple words and everything to be fixed. Maybe they expected Jesus to get up and get to work with them, to do the things that they've been doing, to grab a line, to grab a bucket and start throwing water back overboard. Maybe they expected Jesus to do the things they had been trying to do. But Jesus doesn't always do things the way we want them to be done. And I think it's up to us to realize that the way Jesus is working in and through and around our lives is the way it's supposed to be. Even when we're scared, even when we're in the middle of a storm, Jesus is with us. Now, you notice Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, you have nothing to be afraid of, right? I think that's important to know. Jesus asks, why are you afraid? He's acknowledging that the disciples are scared, but he doesn't say there's nothing to be afraid of. Because our fear is natural sometimes. When we're going through storms in life, when we're going through hard times, we will fear. And that's okay. Jesus knows we're afraid. And it doesn't always turn out the way we want. It doesn't always get better on this side. Because Jesus doesn't always take away the storm. But Jesus is always with us in the storm.
And yes, we have things to do. Jesus gives us things to do in our lives to help bring about God's kingdom on earth. But sometimes we get too caught up in doing the wrong things. Like trying to throw the water back overboard on a sinking ship. Because even in the midst of the work God has called us to do, the one thing God has called us to do above all else is trust. Is to trust that God is with us. God is with us in transitions. God is with us in the hard times. God is with us in the boat, in the midst of the storm. And no matter how high the waves get, no matter how much water comes on board, no matter how hard it may be, all we have to do is trust. Even when God calls us to go to the other side, even when God calls us to do those hard things, even when God calls us to go through the storm, all we have to do is trust that he's right there with us. Amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm a dad, and so this is a dad joke, or at least when I was talking to my kids about it. But the idea of touching other people is a touchy subject. You can groan, I got that from my 11-year-old. But it is. Particularly now, right, these last 18 months, we've been restricted in how we should and can touch each other, both in church and just in public. It's been 18 months without hugging people that aren't in our household. For some, it's been 18 months without hugging elderly friends and relatives. Or it's been 18 months not hugging or touching grandchildren. It's been 18 months of of being physically distanced, even in church. I don't remember if this is a hugging place during the peace or if it's a handshake place or if it's a wave at your neighbor kind of place because, you know, we got all those churches in our diocese. But for the last 18 months, it's been a turn and wave kind of place no matter where you are because we haven't been able to touch With good reason. But even now that we're not wearing masks and and things are getting a little bit back, I've been vaccinated, you know, everyone mostly in my world has been vaccinated. When someone reaches out their hand to shake it, I still, in my mind, second guess. I have to think about touch now when before it was natural. But we all long for that touch, right? We like handshakes. Some like hugs. Some people don't like hugs, and that's okay. But we all long for touch. There's studies that show that the children, babies who aren't held and touched, don't thrive as much. There's, there's places that 
hire people for nursing homes that their only job is to hug residents, right? There's studies on the effect of touch on people because we as humans crave touch from others. So today's gospel, we're going to talk about two touches in particular and two touches that had the power to transform communities because of what they symbolized. So our story today from the gospel is about three main characters, right? There's there's Jesus, there's a woman, and there's a little girl. The little girl is 12 years old and has a life-threatening fever. Something's going on that's bringing her to the brink of death. Then we have an older woman who has a 12-year-old disease. So let's start with this little girl. This is not just any little girl, right? She's the daughter of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. She's the PK. She's the official's daughter. She's popular. Her dad is a big deal in town. Her dad is prim and proper. Her dad knows how to get everything done. But he can't heal his little girl. So he's so worried about his daughter that he walks up, right? So he's a religious leader, and we have a lot of stories in Scripture that religious leaders are really skeptical about Jesus. They really question what Jesus can do. They really question who Jesus is. But Jairus is at his wit's end, and so even knowing this potentially, even doubting potentially Jesus, he walks into a crowd. He walks into everyone who's going to know who he is, And everyone's going to know his thoughts, potentially, about Jesus. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet because he has nowhere else to go. So he falls to his knees, begs Jesus to come with him and to come heal his daughter. And so Jesus starts walking to the house. But then something else happens in the crowd. There's another woman that starts to make her way, pushing and shoving and sliding around people to try to get to Jesus. Now, this woman's been sick for 12 years. She's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. And, and with our modern ears, we probably hear and, and think, that's too bad, a hemorrhage, bleeding. But I think we need to take a moment and try to grasp what's really happening for people in first century Jerusalem. For someone who's been sick for 12 years. For someone who's been bleeding for 12 years. These are are Jewish people who follow the law of Moses to the letter. And the law states that when a person is bleeding, particularly when a woman is bleeding, they are unclean. And this person, particularly a woman, when they are bleeding and unclean, they have to leave the community. They have to be separated from others. They have to be isolated. And in the case of a normal bleeding, this is for a short time, and then after a while they come back and there's a purification ceremony and they can rejoin the community. 
And it's usually not a huge deal because usually the bleeding stops. But for this woman, it's been more than a decade and the bleeding hasn't stopped. This woman has been separated from her community for 12 years. This woman has had no one touch her for 12 years. Because if someone touches a bleeding person, if someone particularly touches a bleeding woman, they also become unclean. And so the fact that this woman pushed through the crowd, all of these people became unclean if we're following the law of Moses. This woman musters up her courage. She pushes through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' cloak. And he stops and in the middle of this crowd looks around and says, who touched me? He sees this woman. He probably sees the longing in her eyes. She, he probably sees the desperation in her eyes. He probably sees the look of courage that it took for her to do what she did. So he stoops down and touches her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And just at that exact moment, a messenger comes from Jairus' house, from the leader's house, and says, don't worry about it. Jesus took too long. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother him anymore. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that. That would be an easy moment for Jairus and for the Jewish leaders and all of them to say, look, Jesus couldn't do anything. He's not who he says he is. But Jesus doesn't let that disappointment stop him. Jesus takes a couple of his friends and Jairus and they all head back to the house. Jesus goes in and sees a commotion happening and, and he tells them all, why are you sad? Do you not know that I'm here? So he sends everybody out of the house And he walks in to this little girl's room and he leans down and he touches her and tells her to wake up. And this little girl comes back to life. And so if we look at these two touches, these two touches were forbidden. We talked about the touching of the bleeding woman that anyone who touched her, or if she touched anyone, they too became unclean. Those same laws of Moses also talk about dead bodies, and anyone who touches a dead body becomes unclean. And so with this perspective of looking through the lens of the law of Moses, it's the dead person, it's the bleeding person, it's the uncleanness that has the power to spread from one to another. If this woman who's bleeding touches you going through the crowd, her uncleanness spreads to you. And if you lean down and touch a dead little girl, the dead little girl's uncleanness spreads to you. But with Jesus, the power is reversed. With Jesus, the uncleanness no longer has the power. With Jesus, the healing, the hope, and the resurrection has the power. 
That's the power of Jesus' touch in our lives. The power of Jesus' touch is to make that which the law declares to be unclean, to be clean. Jesus' touch has the power to take that which the world casts aside and bring it back to the community. Jesus' touch has the power to take that which we think is dead and bring it back to life. Now, there's one more thing I notice in this story, and it's what happens to these two women in order for them to be made clean. The woman who had been ostracized, the woman who had been isolated, the woman who had been sent away from her community, in order for her to be made clean, she had to first come back in to the community. Uninvited, unwelcome, unexpected, but she had to come back in to the community. She had to risk ridicule. She had to risk further isolation. But she risked that to come to the feet of Jesus. And on the other side, Jairus' daughter, right? We talked about she's the belle of the ball. She's popular. She has everything. But in order for her healing to happen, she had to die. Everyone had to leave the house. And she had to be left alone with Jesus. Jesus had to meet her in the darkness of isolation, in the darkness of death, before she could be made well. And I don't think these are accidental details in Mark. I think these are details that help show us that Jesus has come to turn the world upside down. Jesus has come to to bring those who are outside the community back into the community, whether the community wants it or not. Jesus doesn't necessarily care about proper procedure. Jesus wants everyone back in the community. Jesus has come to turn the world upside down and to take those who think they have the power, who think they have the control, who think they have everything together and say, sometimes you have to die before you can be made well. Jesus has come to turn the world, to turn our ideas of power, to turn our ideas of belonging upside down. So here's the challenge for us today. How do we need to experience Jesus' touch? What parts of our lives need need God's healing? What parts of our lives do we need to bring back into the community? Who in our community do we need to bring back? And maybe even more challenging, what parts of our lives do we need to let die so that we can be made well? We all long to hear these words from Jesus. Go in peace, your faith has made you well. I know I need to hear those words. I'm guessing you need to hear those words. And I know the world needs to hear those words. Amen.